Yeah, so the drones, they their only purpose really is to reproduce. And um, once they re- once they mate with a queen, they die. So it's a suicide mission. Harsh, very harsh. Welcome to Connie Caller's Table. Today, I'm in conversation with two women of science. One is Nancy Bird, who now lives north of Yorkton, Saskatchewan, or Ebenezer. No, I'm not making that name up. She has used her science knowledge to help her husband's large animal vet practice and is interested in nature, wild prairie flowers, natural dyes, weaving, and heirloom looms, among other things. Her daughter, Sarah Wood, who lives in Saskatoon, is also a woman of science, presently getting her PhD in biology while having graduated from veterinary medicine at the University of Saskatchewan and is now working as a vet pathologist and spearheading a study of honeybees. That's a lot of information. But these are accomplished creative women with a way of looking at the natural world. They were calling from the country in between planting onions, and there may be a few more glitches than usual. So thank you for your patience. Let me introduce you to Sarah Wood and her mom, Nancy Bird. You're, you're very deceptive both of you, because you don't act as smart as you are, which is very Saskatchewan, very Canadian, but was thinking about the parallels between mother-daughter in that you are both women in science. You're both brilliant. And I was thinking about you, Nancy, when I first met you in Saskatoon. You were working on, now I get this right, you cloned, you were the first person to clone a rapeseed. Is that right? Well, we were, um, I was taking the pollen um, from rapeseed or canola, changing its developmental pathway. And uh, um, instead of producing pollen, it would produce a, uh, a plant. It acted like a fertilized embryo. And it would be haploid. In other words, it would only have one set of chromosomes. But then you could double that set. And then it's a true reading plant that then plant breeders could manipulate it however they want. But I don't, I'm, I don't know if I was the first. I wasn't the first person that developed this technique, but I was using it on uh, a relative of, of canola, hmm. Nebraska carinata, which they're using for, to make diesel fuel. Oh, yeah, the early canola was poisonous. I mean, the early rapeseed was poisonous. That's why they crossbred it to make canola, right? Is that the thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was in the lab, and it was. Uh, but what made you want to do it? Like, why? Why were you there, kind of trying to see if you could do, change the pathways of something? Well, remember, I came from the Maritimes, and I was working on seaweed and agri-producing seaweed, and I was trying to see if it would be economically viable to grow the seaweed in greenhouses, or because the sea isn't big enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I told him. Forget Prince Edward Island or the Maritimes. Go somewhere down to the tropics where it'll really grow fast. And, you know, uh, then I realized I basically researched myself out of a job. <laughs> so, so I had to go somewhere. And I thought, well, I'm with plants, you know, at, at, at the cell level. And so maybe that would, I'd have a new perspective on things. So I thought I'd try another um, NRC uh, one in Saskatoon, 
because I was familiar with uh, their institution. And now you have a daughter who's who's dealing with things on a cellular level, or but you're a scientist as well. Now, did you force her into this? Did she like, you know, have I will be a scientist playing on a small tape recorder as you slept as a baby or something? No, I mean, your kids are musicians. I don't think you forced them. Well, we might have, but no, we're not going to discuss it now. (laughs) You just, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah, you see what your parents do and you want to do the same, I think. Yeah. Did you get your PhD as well? Uh, yeah, I did a master of science and then became a veterinarian, and now I'm completing my PhD. So yeah, I study honeybees. So you all, both of you seem to want to do something that nobody notices. Like when all the other girls were going for the flute, Sarah, you chose the tuba in the school band. Like, yeah, was it just the last instrument left, or you just went for the biggest one? There was no rental fee. <laughs> Sarah. Why did you choose bees? I think, you know, we want to use our skills for the broader good. Skills that I developed as a veterinarian could be applicable to other species, including insects. And sometimes that's where really interesting things happen when worlds collide and unusual matches are made. Like, for example, between veterinary medicine and entomology or seaweed researchers and the prairies. And yet that's interesting. That's where maybe good science happens. I'm sure it does. And I think it's interesting that both of you are not afraid to make those worlds collide. That's always what I've appreciated about your mom. There she is in Yorkton, Saskatchewan, and she's dying plants. She's got, now she's in the search for looms and <laughs> things. Like, is there, I, oh, there's always a very interesting idea and it seems to revolve, both of your ideas seem to revolve about trying to protect something that's valuable that is not necessarily noticed by others. Tell me about bees. What, what, what's going on with bees? My research was mainly looking at the effect of neonicotinoid insecticides on honeybees. And so neonicotinoids are the most widely used insecticides in the world. And 95% of the canola that is grown in Saskatchewan is grown from a seed treated with a neonicotinoid insecticide. So if we are using these chemicals so widely, uh, chances are there's going to be exposure uh, for our pollinators. Canola is a very bee-attractive crop, and so honeybees that pollinate and forage on canola are being exposed to low levels of these neonicotinoids. And so our research was interested in understanding the effects of chronic exposure to these pesticides on honeybee colonies in Saskatchewan. How how do you do it? They're so tiny. How do you figure it out? You can't ask them questions. So yeah, an individual bee is tiny, but a colony is not. It can have 60,000 or more honeybees inside, right? And so much of my research was looking at the colony level. Um, And for example, we found that at... um, high environmental levels of neonicotinoids, colonies produce less honey and they gain less weight over the summer because they're not producing as much honey. Why? Well, there's probably many factors that we don't fully understand, but uh, these insecticides affect their nervous system. And so, for example, a foraging honeybee may forget how to get back to the hive and return with the nectar or might forget 
which plants provide the best sources of nectar because of the effects of these chemicals. What is the bee's nervous system like? Like I realize, I think he has a nervous system. I know it sounds crazy. Of course they would have a nervous system, but thinking, what does a bee's nervous system look like? Well, it's actually um, remarkably similar to vertebrates. And so this is why a veterinarian could have some insight there because we understand the nervous system in other mammals. But yeah, they have a brain, they have a ventral uh, nerve cord, they have ganglia, they have sensory and motor nerves, just like vertebrates do. And uh, different regions of the brain are responsible for different things. They have these... um, One interesting part of the brain is called the mushroom bodies. And so these mushroom bodies integrate sensory information and allow the the bee to process it. Um, And uh, unfortunately, exposure to neonicotinoids can interfere with that uh, neural processing in the mushroom bodies. What's it doing to us if it's doing that to the little bees? Well, the good news is that these chemicals are actually very safe for vertebrates because we have different receptors for these chemicals compared to uh, invertebrates. So part of the reason we're using them so widely is because they are very safe for us. But the concern is that there could be effects on targeted insects. Does it end up in the honey? It does. um, And Saskatchewan has some of the highest levels in the world. Um, but again, it's not a concern necessarily for us. And, and I don't want to give the impression that uh, these chemicals are necessarily bad. They are some of the most uh, safe and um, selective insecticides out there. And so uh, some of the alternatives to these insecticides are actually perhaps much worse for our environment. Um, But what we're trying to do is determine the safe dose range for use um, so that we can protect farmers' access to these valuable insecticides, but at the same time, minimize the effects on non-target insects. Hmm. What do you think of all of this, Nancy? You're listening to her talk. Like, do you have a better understanding than the rest of us? I certainly um, admire her for her... um ability to understand uh, the dilemma that is faced by um, beekeepers and uh, again uh, dealing with uh, farmers that are trying to grow crops like canola you know and so you have to weigh uh, the importance of both you know and sort of it's a difficult path to follow you know and you save the bees you save the farmer how do we do this And, and tell the truth and responsible. That's really a scientist problem, isn't it, these days? Is, is it always? Perhaps it always is. Ever since she was little, she was always going to save the world. So uh... I'm, I'm so glad she is. <laughs> I'm so glad she is, because the rest of us have done a poor job of it so far with the bees. We're counting on you, Sarah. We're counting on you. Get in there. <laughs> the only, the only I, I did, I've actually, you know, what I realized I was sitting there, there are hardly any songs about bees out there. I mean, I've written some for kids. Yeah, hello. What? Yeah, I know. And yet they are essential to so many things in our lives. And the birds and the bees, well, I, you know, I could call this episode the bird, Nancy Bird and the, the birds and the bees. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. Sarah, didn't you develop a mask that could filter out virus, a virus? Uh, uh, apropos of this time. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any of them yeah. left? <laughs> Nancy, are you knitting him in the background? 
weaving. Can, you, can Nancy weave a few for us? That's just 0.5 microns. Okay. <laughs> so you put uh, your, th- so you, you moved back to Saskatchewan, you went into vet med and put your considerable intellect towards this study. Do you think it will be something you're going to continue? Is it going to be the thing you do? Or do you think it will be one th- one of the many things you start to figure out in this world? Yeah, I think it's a skill that I have. And I think, um, you know, from a science perspective, getting a veterinary degree sounds like a waste of time because, you know, you're not doing hard research. Uh, but the thing about it is that it really allows you to think broadly and, um allow you to integrate information from other sources. And also, um, in some ways, I think it's a very important decision I made to get that degree, um, which enables me to do better science now. What do you feel towards this thing you're studying, this little tiny, amazing, amazing insect? Yeah, I feel a responsibility to allow them to thrive and um, I have a colony in my backyard and in Saskatoon and I think that helps me retain a connection I think they have their welfare is just as important as other species and so uh, we need to find a balance there so Nancy Mm -hmm. how do you continue your scientific brain to be a scientist like Sarah you have to be very creative right absolutely we were just talking about uh, working with your hands and why I'm doing this. And, and I guess it's, to me, it just seemed uh, so natural to, to pursue something like weaving or spinning or natural dyeing. I'm still doing experiments. I'm still working with my hands. I'm creating things that trying to find out things that uh, relationships and it just is a, a carryover from, from, science it's like being in the lab again you know and you have to be there's a preciseness about things but yet there's also this element of unknown and just winging it you know you flying by the seat of your pants and it's fun because now it's not so critical in science you have to be so careful but uh you know when you're doing what i'm doing now it's really uh the pressure's off a little bit and like you really can just explore you're free to do whatever comes into your head you know I think it's so gratifying for me that both of you, who I think are both, I think you're brilliant women, are so tied and connected and looped back into the natural world. It's just nice to remind yourself that uh, doing these simple things are important. And yes, you can strive to publish in scientific journals and, and do that. But at the same time, you need to balance that with just some time in nature. Do you think this curiosity is a lifelong curse or what? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a good way to have a happy life. How do you feel as women in science? Nancy? I mean, when you started out, there were, I mean, there couldn't have been many women in science in that time. You must have been a real oddball. Yeah, I just always knew I wanted to to be involved in the studying uh, something to do with nature or, you Mm. know, uh, the biological world. And I was just happiest there. I, f- I just felt comfortable that way, you know, in studying the natural world. So I think it was always at the back of my mind that uh, we were on a rather precarious journey. And we had to learn as much as you possibly could about uh, the world if we were going to continue to live here. You are right. I just have such a great respect for 
in actual world, you know, and, you know, we need to tread lightly. You've obviously instilled that in your daughter. So if you guys had advice for the rest of the world and to get them thinking and exploring and interested about the natural world, what would your advice be? Plant a garden (laughs) in your backyard (laughs) or community garden. Yeah. Look around you and, uh, and, and, and try to live within, it is simpler. I think, you know, I think you'd be much happier. Hmm. So Sarah, how do you see your, your life and science? How do you connect back to nature when you're in university and you're working in labs and stuff? How do you still keep grounded? Uh, well, actually, I would say we're lucky um, that we aren't just stuck in a lab, that we can go outside and play with bees. <laughs> I guess I come home to the farm. That's my other respite, you know, just a break from the city. And it uh, reminds me what's important. No more tuba playing? Ah, hopefully. Yeah, that's, hopefully that will come back. Yeah. There's um, Flight of the Bumblebee is a tuba piece that I like to play. Oh, that's like, I think somebody invented that to just torture like violin players or something like that. It's got that kind of, that got kind of uh, manic thing to it. They imagined it. They didn't have to play it. That's the nice thing about composers. They can imagine it and then throw it down for others to do. I can't imagine it on the tuba, mind you, but there you go. Okay. So Sarah, what is something about bees that I would not know that you figured out or are or, or looking at? What's something that some very cool thing about bees that I need to know. Well, uh, I guess how do um, they decide what becomes a queen and what becomes a worker, right? So when the the queen lays an egg, she um, lays the same egg. The difference is that um, one egg gets fed royal jelly exclusively as as that larva develops, whereas the other larva, once the egg hatches, will be fed a mix of royal jelly um, as well as some pollen and nectar. And so the diet is what determines whether or not that larva is going to become a queen or whether it's going to become a sterile worker. Can you determine that there's any reason why one would be chosen over the other, or is it just eeny, meeny, miny, mo in the bee world? Well, so no, actually, they're quite selective. They're very choosy may have something to do with uh, the genetic composition of that larva perhaps Mm. or has some good qualities that they think would make a good queen well how do they figure that out is the next question well there's a lot of interesting communication with pheromones um, that we don't fully understand Um, but uh, they are a a eusocial organism, and that's very rare in nature. Um, so they cooperate to um, raise their brood, and they have overlapping generations. So that the daughters and the mother they live um, in the same colony together, and they have division of labor. So they um, have a remarkable number of tasks throughout their life, and the tasks are age specific. And so they might start off, a worker honeybee might start off as um, a nurse bee, right, tending to the brood in the colony um, and might graduate into um, perhaps like a defender of the colony, so protecting the colony from invaders. And then later in her life um, will then 
become a forager because that's the highest risk activity, right? Flying out to gather nectar and pollen. And, and so she doesn't assume that task until later in her life when, uh, you know, perhaps she's less valuable to the colony because she's starting to age. Good thing we're not bees, Nancy. We'd have to be out there foraging in a risk situation. <laughs> and it's only the, it's only the, the females that work. Yeah, so the drones, they their only purpose really is to reproduce, and um, once they re- once they mate with a queen, they die. So it's a suicide mission, and they're sort of considered a luxury in the colony. You're, the colony is only going to produce drones if they have excess resources, and uh, things are tight. Right, they're trying to gather enough food for winter. They'll just kick all the drones out of the hive and let them die. Harsh, very harsh. <laughs> Another cool thing is that they can change their lifespan, right? What? So in order to survive a Saskatchewan winter, yeah. What? So they can the change same, their lifespan? Yeah. So they only live 42 days or six weeks in the summer. Oh. But in the winter, that same bee can live six months. How? Yeah. Well, it's probably to do with um, hormones and they can sense that the days are getting shorter. And so they change their um, sort of hormonal signals and um, perhaps reduce their metabolic rate um, and they can survive the winter. That's pretty amazing. They can change their lifespan. Nancy, didn't you used to give away honey at Christmas, like to your clients at the vet, uh, your vet, other farmer vet clients? That's right. Uh, at Christmas time, I'd put a little hat on the cow. There's a cow sign at our uh, entrance to our driveway, and I'd put a little elf hat on, and meaning that the honey was in. And then people would come and say, "Oh, you know, I just, I just need a syringe. I just, I just need a needle." <laughs> they were looking for the honey, and it's an excuse to come over, right? And they were good clients. So, um, but yeah, it was very popular, and it was just wonderful. Sarah. Do you think you'll ever figure bees all out? No, oh, that's the beauty of it, right? Lifetime of study. And do you know what, like, how a normal bee works? Like, if they know nicanoids are affecting them, do they know what a regular, like, how a bee's brain works on when it isn't being affected like that? We know lots about their anatomy and physiology, but there's still more to learn. Uh, and we know that they have other diseases, bacteria and bacteria and viruses and parasites, just like other animals do. Um, and I guess what we need to understand is um, how all these different stressors, you know, pesticides and uh, and disease and environmental change, how are all those stressors working together to impact their population, and what can we do to mitigate the stressors? Hmm. And what do you hope for your daughter in science, Nancy? Well, I think she's already gone beyond my expectations already, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my uh, goodness. Isn't that fabulous to hear, Sarah? <laughs> here she's getting a PhD uh, and uh, doing research, and she's working full-time as a pathologist, and it's Every day she phones up with, uh, geez, you have seen what I saw today. Like she was uh, doing an necropsy on a cougar from the forestry wow. farm. And a wolf is on the on the schedule, you know, and I don't know, it's just uh, amazing. She's just has an interesting life. 
So she she did the same, a similar path that you did. Is she negotiating it better than you did in those days? Like, is it, is it easier for her as a woman scientist or, you know, as a scientist now to do that? I think so. I, you know, I think so. There's so much more uh, uh, available, you know, to help her on her, on her uh, quest for knowledge that, that I, mean, we, I remember the first day the, the, the calculator came out when you, all of a sudden you didn't have to use a slide rule anymore. You know what I mean? But it's just incredible. Like she can video conference, you know, the, and then information can just fly around the world so quickly. Or even now, or I hear, listen to them trying to develop this vaccine for the, for the COVID-19, you know, and while the cooperation amongst uh, um, all the international scientists, because for the better good of us all. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Well, I think the people that are interested in figuring stuff out, there's no matter what culture they come from, there is that common bond of curiosity and, and respect for the natural world or whatever that is. I think that's, that's the world you guys are in. Is it a nice world? It's a heartbreaking world. You know what I mean? It's it's beautiful, but it's also Uh, very hard. Um, to see things, but um, I guess what you, do, you you have to do is live by example, right? Even in your small acts. It is the curse of parenting, isn't it? It is the curse of parenting. You have to live by example. No, I want them to be. I want them to be able to clean up way better than me. It's the curse of parenting. Living by example. Who dreamed up that idea? No. Where did that come from? I don't know. I don't know, but. You know, even when Sarah's home for the weekend, which are not not that frequent anymore, but okay. So you know, I have to teach her how to how to um, grind uh, uh, spelt to make flour, or, you know, and um, trying to show her planting things. onions. Planting, she had to put the onions in upside down. So I said, no, 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 no. Around, <laughs> but well, that's how we know, all learned, isn't it? Well, that's how you. And no one's. Everyone, everyone is has. Uh, uh, has intelligent minds and and you know uh, creative ideas. They're, everybody does. You just have to um, use them and and cultivate them, right? I'm interested in how ideas happen too. Like the idea. Oh, what if we did this? Like the idea to change yeah, the pathway of the ball. And <laughs> like what? Yeah. Well, even you. Like here you are farming. You know. I just. You know. There's. You know, which makes sense. Uh, you know, there's the background. Life is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and then when I saw your grain mill sitting up on your closet, and I realized, well, I have the same one. Well, how can that? <laughs> can we still be doing this, the same things? You know? Yeah. Well, because they're interesting. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't doesn't make you happy to dream up something you want to try? Like. Like, is that like, oh, like it's like a song or an idea? Oh, is that the same for you in science? Oh, yeah, for sure. But uh, oftentimes it may not be your ex- entirely your own idea. You know, it might be your lab group. You collaborate to come up with the idea or everyone puts in a piece of the yeah. information to come up with a collective idea. I think maybe those are the most rewarding types of ideas or ones that are come up you come up with as a group well you have to notice a good idea going past i think that's part of it to recognize it for what it is mm-hmm. having an open mind really isn't 
that what a lot of it is just being receptive like you know those little feelers are just waiting for ideas to arrive yeah know something more about anything i think is it ripples through all the other parts of your life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so exciting it is it is are there lots of different kinds of honeybees the honeybee is an introduced species, right? It's the European honeybee. It's not native to North America, but we have thousands of native bee species here. Do they make um, honey? Many of them do not. Um, and so... Yeah, like leaf cutters and stuff like that, but... Yeah, so I really am not an expert in um, native bees at all. I know very little. And maybe what I learned about honeybees, some of that can apply to learning something about native bees or because we have we have bees like in the coolies and i'm wondering are they just like honeybees that have you know made a run for it or did they belong there have they already always been there or are they just somebody's hive that got sick and tired of making honey for someone else and decided to make a run for it well most bee species are solitary so probably what you're seeing there are solitary native bees hmm. um, and many of them are ground nesting as well so uh they don't live in cavities like honeybees. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot we don't know about them. And, and probably they are more at risk, actually, than the honeybee. Because the honeybee is managed, right? There's beekeepers looking after them. Nobody's managing the native bees. And so while the honeybee is charismatic and gets everyone's attention. Well, it makes honey. So, you know. Yeah, but probably those those native bees are providing probably even more valuable ecosystem services because they're actually native to North America hmm. uh, that we don't even know um, and probably not doing a lot about it to protect them. Well, I'm going to leave that to you. <laughs> what do you think we can do? <laughs> Any advice for someone who's sitting there thinking that, that this is interesting and that they might want to do it or anybody out there thinking that, uh, is there anybody considering that science might be something they want to pursue? What would you say to them? It's never too late. And there's, you don't even have to go back to school. There's lots of really cool citizen science projects out there. Um, you know, you can take pictures of wild pollinators on your phone and submit them online to various honeybee or wild bee notification apps. Ah. So there's lots of easy ways to get involved. I don't necessarily advocate becoming a beekeeper yourself unless you're really committed to understanding their biology and, and their care. Um, but there's lots of simple things you can do, like planting pollinator-friendly gardens and, um, yeah, just paying more attention to your surroundings. Thank you. You're the second generation of somebody who has gone that path and taken that path and taken that commitment to doing that. It's a big job. You know, it's a lot of work and, and, and it's a focus and it means you dedicate all this time to trying to figure out something that we as a world benefit for. And that's something to applaud. I thank you for dedicating your life to all that lab work when the rest of us are just buggering off. <laughs> okay, bye. Thank you, Nancy and Sarah. Thank you for joining me, Nancy Bird, and Sarah Wood in conversation. If you have any questions about Sarah's work, you can Google her at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. And yes, Ebenezer, Saskatchewan is on the map. 
I'm sending you out with a story song of mine about the bears and the bees. Feel free to sing along. There was a great big bear that climbed up a great big tree looking for his favorite thing, honey. Honey, 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 honey. He climbed out on a limb as careful as can be and made a piece of toast to have some honey. Honey, 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 honey. There was a hole in the tree and out came a little bee. He'd spent all summer long making his honey. Honey, 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 honey. The bear said, Mr. B, I've toast, as you can see, and I would like to take all of your honey. Honey, 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 honey. The bee said, Mr. Bear, I've lots and I can share, but I can't give you all of my honey. Honey, 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 honey. The bear said, Mr. B, I'm big, as you can see, and I'll reach in and take all of your honey. Honey, 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 honey. Now when a bee stings a bear on the nose, ah, down and down he goes. He falls to the bottom of the tree without his honey, 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 honey. And from that very day, so the squirrels say, the bear would always eat his toast with jam, 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 jam. jam.